Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. We have a very profound topic tonight, and a very useful one, I think. We're talking about getting to know your soul. And getting to know yourself is probably a good idea. It's probably useful and helpful, enlightening, and strengthening. Because when you know yourself, a lot of things are possible. To know ourselves, we have to consult the experts of the soul. And we're not talking here about the godly soul. The little piece of God that it was within us that makes us Jewish, that's not the soul we're talking about. We're talking about the human soul, the normal soul, the soul that makes us different from each other, that gives us each a different personality, different qualities, different strengths, weaknesses, whatever. Obviously, all human activity comes from the soul. Without the soul, the body does nothing. So all activity, all sensation, all feelings, all awareness comes from the soul. These are talents that the soul has. The soul has intelligence and the soul has emotions, for example. There are people who are more intelligent, not so emotional. There are people who are more emotional, not so intelligent. There are people who have strong will, forceful personalities, and there are people who are retiring and uh, gentle in their personalities. What do these things mean? How do they work? What happens when they don't work? How do you fix them? This is the kind of thing we need to understand. And this is much deeper, and I think more useful for the healthy person, than what psychology can tell us. Let's take a look at the beginning of all wisdom, meaning to say, how do we, each of us, get to know anything? Where does knowledge come from? How does it happen? What does it do? The first thing we have to know is that when God created the world, he created it with a system with a principle that says healthy existence is an interaction between giving and receiving, the giver and the receiver. Chaos and destruction is when there is no receiving, only giving, or no giving, only receiving. When there's an imbalance or an absence of either giving or receiving, you have chaos. In the orderly world, everything that happens, happens through the process, the function of light and vessel, giving and receiving. That's why you have the Kabbalistic concept of tzimtzum, of God restricting his light. Why restrict the light? So that it is comfortable for the recipient because there has to be a healthy giving and receiving a teacher for example 
a real teacher, you know, the classic ideal perfect teacher, and the perfect student is a giving and a receiving. The teacher has to give in a way that the student can receive, otherwise he makes the kid crazy. He creates chaos in the mind and in the heart if the subject is relevant. The student, on the other hand, has to know how to receive and be willing to receive, otherwise there will be no accomplishment. Giving and receiving are both very demanding activities in the, in the example of the teacher and, and the student. A real teacher doesn't just offer information. That's the guy behind the counter, you know, information <laughs> at the airport or something. He gives you information. A teacher talks his heart out. A teacher invests his soul, his life, in conveying what he wants to convey. If he doesn't talk his heart out, he's not a teacher. He's a lecturer. It's not the same. In order for the teacher to be an effective teacher, a couple of conditions. First of all, he has to give himself not just a page of information. He has to invest himself. He has to pay a price. Because in order to make the student understand, the teacher has to sacrifice what he is on his own. On his own, he might be a great scholar. On his own, he would sit and study much deeper subjects that are for him interesting and progress and so on. Instead, he is teaching a simple subject to students. It's a sacrifice. He has to adjust his thinking to the student's intelligence. He has to take an interest to make sure that the student actually understood what the teacher thought he had conveyed to make sure that he did in fact convey it. And finally, the teacher has to stimulate the student. He has to create a receptivity in the student. He has to get his curiosity. He has to whet his appetite so that the student wants to know. That's all the teacher's job. The student has a job as well. If we're talking about anything older than kindergarten, it's an effort and a bit of a sacrifice to be a student. Because to truly be receptive, if you're going to be really receptive, then you can't be doing anything else at the same time. To be receptive, you have to be busy receiving. You have to be committed to receiving. And that would mean that while you're listening to the lesson, you can't be thinking whether you agree or disagree, whether you like what you're hearing or you don't like what you're hearing, whether it's familiar or unfamiliar, whether it's consistent with what you know or contradicts everything you know. This is all a distraction. 
Those are not the thoughts of a recipient. The receiver, the true student, has no thoughts other than what he's hearing. That's called receiving. If the student is thinking, but I never heard that before, he's not receiving. If he's thinking, I don't really understand that, I don't like how this sounds, then he stopped receiving. So to receive takes a certain amount of humility. Actually, a great amount of humility. And to teach takes a great amount of humility. To give up your own studies and devote yourself to the limited understanding of a child or of a student takes humility. An arrogant person cannot be a good teacher because he won't step out of his own mind and adjust to the student's mind. Where does this humility come from? Where does humility in general come from? And humility is supposed to be the most important quality in a human being where we're told in all things you should be moderate but in humility you should be exceedingly humble. What is this humility and where does it come from? Now we're not talking about humility that comes from being humiliated. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different... There's no relationship at all between humility and humiliation. Humiliation means somebody else thinks you're not so great. <laughs> humility means you don't think you're so great. It's two different things. But where does it come from? Why would a person be humble? Here's the issue. The soul itself, when you talk about the essence of the soul, the body of the soul, if we can use that expression, the soul itself has no humility. We're talking about the human soul. The godly soul is humble. The human soul has no humility. Why? It has nothing to compromise. When you're talking about the essence of something, the essence of something has to be itself. There's no flexibility there. You can say to a person, regardless of who you are, don't say anything. Be quiet. Okay. So he compromises in his expression. He won't say what he feels. You can even tell a person not to feel. Don't get angry. Okay. Anger is only one of the many functions. You can tell a person, don't get angry. Stop being angry. You can even tell a person not to think. Don't even think about it. <laughs> think of something else. But you can't tell a person not to be himself. Because to, to compromise that, it's all over. So the essence of anything is indivisible. It cannot be compromised. So in the soul itself, there is no flex. There is no give. There is no compromise. It is what it is, and that's all it can be. 
emotions that come from the soul are also inflexible. There's no humility to emotions. No emotion ever said, maybe I'm not valid. <laughs> I am anger, but, but maybe I'm not necessary. Anger never said that. Anger can't say that because emotions have no humility. And that's why children who are pure emotion, before their intelligence develops, they can't compromise. So where does humility come from? The soul itself, the human soul, is essentially intelligent. It's not that it is capable of intelligence. It is essentially an intelligent being. It knows. When we learn something, when we understand something in our mind, we have brought the intelligence of the soul to the brain, to the mind. So the process of knowing, of understanding, is to bring the information that exists naturally, natively, organically in the human soul, to bring it down to the mind. Which means that there's a give and take like a teacher and a student within yourself. Your soul is the teacher, your mind is the student. Now the distance between your mind, which is finite, and your soul, which by comparison is infinite, the distance is very big. And that's why when a thought, an original thought, occurs to a person, it's like a new creation. We have no idea where it came from. We can't trace it back. You sit and study a subject. You don't know the answer. You've got a problem. You ponder the question. You don't know the answer. So whatever it is you do, you stew on it, and then all of a sudden you know. Where did the answer come from? It feels like it came out of nowhere. And in fact, that's how this process is described in Kabbalah. Chachma me'ayin temotzei. Chachma comes out of nowhere. Doesn't really come out of nowhere, but it feels that way. Because the source of the information is completely unknown to us. We don't know what our soul knows. So that's why it's this flash of insight when you suddenly know is compared to lightning, a lightning bolt out of nowhere. Suddenly you know. Light bulb goes on. In that process, your mind is keenly aware of this miracle of birth. A new idea is suddenly born. It wasn't, and now it is. I didn't know, and now I do. The mind is keenly aware of the not knowing 
that eventually turned into knowing. In fact, that's how the mind works. You have a problem, trying to figure it out. What's the answer? If you think, try, ponder, and the answer doesn't come, you get frustrated. Partly because the answer is there and you can't get to it. That's frustrating. If there's no answer, then you don't get frustrated. You admit you don't know and you walk away. Why is it that when we try to understand something and we're having a hard time, we get frustrated? Because we know the answer is in there somewhere. Why can't I get to it? Why won't it tell me the answer? It meaning the source of wisdom within the soul. But then here's what happens. When you want to know really badly, you need to know, and you've asked yourself this question, and not having the answer really bothers you, what is happening is your being is rising. You're losing interest in everything around you. You're divesting. You forget that you're hungry. You forget that the seat is uncomfortable. You forget what time it is. You're reaching upwards by excluding your environment and your surroundings. You're divesting yourself, undressing from all the stuff and are focused completely on this quest. Tell me. Give me the answer. When you reach a point where you can't take it anymore, the hunger to know and the frustration of not knowing is exhausting you and you can't take it anymore, your mind goes blank for a second. And in that second, the answer comes. In other words, the intense neediness, the hunger to know, causes the answer to come. When you are so receptive that you have forgotten everything else and you want only this, now you're a student. And when you're a real student, the teacher becomes a good teacher. A student who really wants to know inspires the teacher. He makes the teacher into a teacher. But the point of it is that in that internal process, you actually go from zero to something. From not to yes. I don't know. I don't understand. I can't see. And then all of a sudden, ah, I know. I see. I understand. That seeing, that transition, feeling that transition causes the mind to be humble. Seeing birth is humbling. Even if it's not your birth. <laughs> seeing your own mind give birth, seeing an idea come into being 
is very humbling. Because a moment ago I wasn't. I didn't know. The mind was blank, empty. And now it's full. See, the soul never experiences that. It doesn't experience itself not existing and then beginning to exist. Because before it existed, it didn't experience anything. Its experience is only of its existence, finished product. Same is true with emotions. Emotions don't see themselves happen. They only see after the fact. I am angry. How did you get angry? I don't know. I am. The mind actually watches the process. And that's where humility comes from. I wasn't a moment ago. How arrogant can I be? All humility, therefore, comes from recognition of your ancestry. Recognition of the fact that you came from something you weren't always. That's intelligence. Now what happens is the intelligence now communicates to the emotions. And the process repeats itself. In order for the emotions to receive direction, guidance, advice from the intelligence, the emotions have to have some humility. And in order for the mind to care enough to speak to the emotions, which are beneath the mind, the mind has to have a certain humility. For example, you study a subject like creation. How God created the world. Creation came out of nothing. It's the ultimate miracle. And if creation came out of nothing, then creation itself is nothing. Then the created being can't be real, etc., etc. You study the subject. It's very deep, it's very intelligent, it's very challenging, and your mind really enjoys it. But so what? Your mind actually says, okay, so what? You see the humility in that? The mind just finished grasping this fantastic idea, mastering the subject, gets great pleasure from the knowledge and from the knowing and from the mastering and so on. And then, instead of sitting there content, the mind says, all right, but so what? In other words, what emotion, what path, what conclusion? It's an amazing humility on the part of the mind. But we already know that the mind is humble. How does it communicate with the emotions? The truth is that unless you're a very, very special human being, your emotions never understand your mind. You say to your anger, to use that example again, you say to your anger, you have no reason to be angry. Stop it. Because the insult that you thought was unintentional, 
The person didn't mean to insult you, so don't be so angry. The emotions are basically dumb. They don't understand what unintentional means. They can't spell it. So when the mind says, no, 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 don't get angry, it was unintentional. The emotions say, it's what? It never understands what the mind is saying because it has no brain. It's a heart. A heart has no brain. What happens is the emotions sense the mind's humility. It doesn't understand the words. But when the mind speaks to the emotions, the emotions say, I don't know what you're talking about, but you're not upset. How come? How come you're not angry? And a little bit of that humility rubs off on the emotions. And now the emotions have gained a little humility. Having that little bit of humility, it can agree to cancel itself and stop being angry, or stop being jealous, or stop being afraid. Not because it understands, it hasn't gotten any smarter. And the proof is, next time it'll get angry all over again. What it does get from the mind is a taste of humility. So the emotions are impressed not with the logic, with the calmness. It's interesting. Uh, it's almost a physical description. The mind calms the heart. How? The heart is emotions. The heart is hot. Emotions are heat. So the heart is hot. The mind is cool, rational. The cool breeze of the mind cools the heat of the heart, if it blows in that direction. So even physically, according to Kabbalah, the brain is cold and wet compared to the heart that is dry and hot. Dry and hot is fragmentation. Right? If something is dry and it's hot, it falls apart. It disintegrates. If something is wet and cool, it sticks or freezes, hangs together. The mind sees unity. The emotions see only fragments. And that's why the emotions get so irrational, because they can only see a fragment. They can only deal with a fragment. These are my feelings. You said, you touched me. It was my toy. You took it. Everything is fragmented. My space, your space, my rights, your rights, my opinion, your opinion. Sometimes even within myself. I love it, but I hate it. I want to go, but I don't want to go. I want to tell them, but I'm afraid. I would love to tell them, but I'm afraid to tell them. So even within the heart itself, there's fragmentation. There's no unity. There's no wholeness. Hopefully in the mind, it's not that way. So where does humility come from? 
Humility comes from seeing the birth. And that's why the Mishnah says, who is a Chacham? Who is smart? The one who sees what will be born. The simple meaning is, he can uh, anticipate consequences. You're smart if you see the consequence that's coming. If you don't see what the consequences are, you can't see ahead, then you're not so smart. That's the simple meaning. The deeper meaning is you actually see the birth, the birth of the idea. And that's why genuine geniuses are always humble people. But it's not a humility of, um, of self-denigration. It's not, I'm stupid. I'm, it's an internal kind of humility. A natural humility. One of the ways that it expresses itself. The biggest genius is always interested in what you have to say. A little genius has no patience for you. The true genius is always interested. He always wants to find out something. Always wants to learn. There was a, uh, a medical problem with a newborn child in Crown Heights years ago. And uh, the attending doctor reported to the Rebbe the progress, the uh, the condition of the child and so on. It was an unusual condition, congenital problem. And when the doctor would come out of the Rebbe's room, he was amazed. The Rebbe was in his 80s. And the doctor said, he has the curiosity of a child. He loves new information. Usually people at that age are quite comfortable with what they already know. The Rebbe's eagerness to learn was like a child, a good child. <laughs> That's the humility of true genius. It's not a loss of self-respect. That's not humility. That's self-humiliation. It's not a loss of self-respect. It's a humble willingness and hunger for what I don't yet know, for what I don't yet have. Sadly, there are instances in which children of 10, 8, 7 years old are no longer open to new information. You try to tell them something new, they resist. Oh no, I never heard that. The mind is closed, not for lack of intelligence, but for a lack of humility. And that's why one of the signs of an intelligent person, of a chacham, as described in the, uh, in the Mishnah, a chacham is someone who never speaks in the presence of someone greater. Why doesn't he speak? Is he afraid he'll make a fool of himself? No. He won't tell the other person what he already knows because all he wants to do is learn something he doesn't yet know. So he's in the receptive mode. And that's why he won't speak. 
Because if he speaks, he loses an opportunity. At that time, he could have been listening. And that's why the sages are called Talmud, Talmidei Chachamim, a Talmud Chacham. The literal meaning of it is, you are a student of wisdom. Talmud Chacham, a student of Chachma, of wisdom. And that's what we call an accomplished sage. He is not described or defined by what he already knows. He is described by the fact that he still wants to know more. That's the humility. So here's a complete human being. A complete human being is not a, a walking brain. That's not a mensch. That's not a well-balanced individual. A real human being, an actualized human being, is a person in whom the emotions have become intelligent. Intelligent emotions, that's a real human being. Emotions alone, that's an animal. Intelligence alone, that's an angel. There are angels that are brilliant. They have no feelings. They're just angels. A human being is a creature whose emotions can be intelligent. But again, it doesn't mean that the emotions are now scholars. That doesn't happen. What it means is that the emotions have a personality similar to that of intelligence because they have acquired humility. So when the mind can transfer a little humility to the emotions, now you've got a well-rounded, complete human being. Where does the mind get its, its humility from? From this one dimension of the mind, which is called Chachma, which is the inventive part of the mind, the discoverer. The other part of the mind is the student, the studier, the researcher. That's called Bina. That's where the mind works with a given idea. It's not discovering a new one. But it develops, it fleshes out, it examines, it analyzes and squeezes more information out of the original idea. The third part of the mind is the part that can relate to the information. It can get attached. So you have Chachma, Bina, and Das. Das means the connection, the relationship. A person can be brilliant and discover a new idea, genius idea. Then he can sit and develop it until he's got it worked out to every detail, every facet, every angle. He knows exactly what it is, where it goes, how it works, and so on. And it means nothing to him. He remains detached. No das. He doesn't identify with it. So, for example, I read a book on the theory of relativity.
I study it, I understand it, I enjoy it. Thank you very much. Now I'm sitting in a crowded room and somebody says, E equals MC squared. I don't react. What do I care? I'm not Einstein. The fact that I studied the subject didn't make it part of my identity. See, on the other hand, if I'm sitting in a crowded room and somebody says Jew, I do not remain indifferent. <laughs> Who, me? You talking to me? It can be a room full of Jews. And yet, if somebody says Jew, I take it personally. Who, you mean me? Because I identify with that word. Somebody in a crowded room says, Rebbe, I react. I read a book on relativity, and somebody says Einstein, and I'm not Einstein. I don't react. If I had absorbed the information to the level of Das, then now it's my subject. Relativity? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that. Why do I have that reaction? I'm identified. That's what Das adds to the picture. So, insight and discovery, that's Chachma. Understanding, analysis, conclusions, questions, answers, that's Bina. Identity, recognition, and the beginnings of emotion, that's Das. It's a little off the subject, but it's interesting. What is recognition? What does that mean? You park your car <laughs> in the parking lot and you can't find it because they all look alike. You can't identify your car. You don't recognize it. You know, people have this problem. It's very sad. They hang up their coat in a coat rack. That's it. They can't find their coat. It was gray. All the coats are gray. Doesn't know which one is his. He looks at his own coat. Inside, outside. I don't know. Is this my coat? On the other hand, you have people who can recognize their dollar bill. That's the one I had. They held it for three minutes or whatever. That's it. They'll identify it and recognize it and uh, pick it out of all other dollar bills because they have a talent called recognition. So there's an interesting statement in the Gemara. A child does not recognize his father until he has eaten grains. What does it mean, recognize your father? A child doesn't know what a father is. So what makes this man different from all other men? And it's not just, oh, I've seen this face many times. No, he recognizes his father. We generally assume a child reacts to his father because it's a familiar face. What the Gemara is saying is that a child recognizes that this is his father even though he doesn't know what a father is. 
So it's not a matter of intelligence, it's only a matter of recognition. Take another example. You can tell when a person is telling you the truth versus a person who's lying. You don't know what gave it away. You can't say, I know you're lying because there is no intelligent reason, but you recognize truth, and that's not truth. This ability to recognize, that comes from Das. Because in order to recognize, you have to identify. Once you become familiar, identified with something, you'll always recognize it. So here's how it works. The first step in the Das is that you identify. The second is, now you recognize. And the result is, you're getting excited. The excitement really belongs in the heart. That's the place of excitement. But in the mind, there's a certain cerebral kind of excitement. And what causes that? The identification. Because intelligence is objective. E equals MC square is nothing about me. I'm not E, I'm not M. So it's not about me. So when I study the subject, it's an objective research. It's an objective quest. But once I become identified with that subject, now it's starting to be subjective. That's a little bit about me now, because that's my subject. And as soon as it becomes a little bit subjective, it becomes a little bit exciting. <laughs> because anything about me is exciting. <laughs> so if I'm starting to take it personally, that's the beginnings of excitement. It's no longer purely objective. On the tefillin that we wear, on the, on the headpiece of the tefillin, there is the letter shin on both sides, the right and the left side. However, on one side, the shin has three heads. So it looks like a three-headed... On the other side, it has four heads. Now, this is the tefillin you wear on your head. It's about the mind. So if it has the letter shin with three heads, we understand, because in the mind there are three functions. The Chachma, the Bina, the Das. What's with the four-headed shin? That's because in the Das, when you get there, there's a bit of an excitement. And excitement means pro or con. Now you've got four. Because Das gets divided into two. Yes and no. Pro, con. I like, I don't like. Because there's a little bit of, can't call it emotion, but a little bit of sensation there. And all sensation is either positive or negative. Yes or no. Towards or away. I want to know more. I don't want to hear this anymore. <laughs> I want to get closer. I want to get further. I approve. I object. 
So there's where we get into the four-headed mind. One final thing about intelligence and emotion. When the intelligence affects the emotion, it is not by pulling rank. The mind is higher than the heart, even physically. The reason a human being stands up straight, unlike most animals, the reason the human being stands up straight is because in the human being, the mind is higher than the heart in terms of uh, hierarchy. And that's why the body reflects that. The brain sits on top of the heart, not on a horizontal line with the heart. And yet, the effect that the mind has on the heart is not one of authority. It's not that the mind has the authority to tell the heart what to do. The mind doesn't dictate. The mind has to reason with the heart, which is not easy because the heart is not intelligent. And yet, that's the way intelligence affects emotions. It does it by persuasion. The result is conviction. When a person says, I am committed, I have a conviction, I am devoted, what does that mean? It means you're opinionated. It means I've made up my mind. Conviction is much more than that. Conviction is actually in the heart. How does the heart get a conviction? What does the heart know anyway? So how do you have a conviction of the heart? When the mind reasons with the heart, the result is a conviction. I have been convinced. I have been won over. I have been seduced by the mind's reasoning, by the mind's patience, by the mind's humility. So now it has become my thing. The heart says, you've convinced me, you've won me over. I now flow along with you. Whereas, for example, willpower, you can be angry, but you don't want to be. You can't afford to be right now because you're, you're going to lose your job or whatever. So you will your emotion to quit. You will your heart to stop being angry. It doesn't really stop. It's crushed. It's silenced by the authority of your will, by the power of your will. But it's not on your side. It doesn't have a conviction. It only has obedience. And that is the benefit or the virtue of mind over heart versus willpower over heart. So you can say, I'm going to raise my children to be good kids. They're not going to get angry when they shouldn't. They're going to love the people they should. They're not going to hate unnecessarily. I'm going to train their emotions. But how am I going to do it? By my authority. I'm the father. I'm bigger. I'm older. I tell you what to do. If you don't do this, you're out of the will. 
And it can work. Because will is a dictator and is very effective. And when the will says no, it's no. But there's no conviction in the heart. The child will behave perfectly. He will not be a good person. Because his emotions have not acquired any new talents. They've simply been corralled. Which could be good. It's not the way you want to go. And that's why be religious, obey the commandments, follow the rules out of fear of punishment. You haven't changed people. You haven't elevated them. You haven't raised them. You haven't made them better. You've simply intimidated them. That's not called conviction. So although you have the right ideas in the mind, your mind has the right convictions, but they're not getting to the heart. And that's not a mensch. A mensch is emotions with the dignity of intelligence. And that happens because the mind convinces. It doesn't dictate. That explains another statement of the sages. A wise person speaks softly. Why? Because he's polite? Because wisdom doesn't use authority. If you're using authority, you raise your voice. If you're using conviction, compelling arguments, winning over the heart, there's no reason for shouting. So the Chacham speaks softly because he wants to be heard, not obeyed. Make sense? 